All right, Nico, can you say welcome to another episode of Healthy Births, Happy Babies? It's a happy episode. Um, happy babies. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of Healthy Births, Happy Babies. I'm Dr. Jay Warren. I'm the prenatal and pediatric chiropractor here at the Capuana Center. And this podcast is all about helping you have a proactively healthy pregnancy so you can have a safe, gentle, natural birth. And that's going to allow you to bring your baby into the world that much more gently and healthily so you can start off your family experience more powerfully than if it's full of stress and trauma and other health concerns. So... If you are a fan of this show and you haven't yet subscribed, please do so. Wherever you listen to your podcast, go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss an upcoming episode. And also, if you haven't rated reviewed the podcast and you've enjoyed it and gotten value of it, that will really help me out because that will allow this podcast to reach more and more parents like yourself that might be missing out on this type of information and helping them along their parenting journey. So thank you in advance for that, and thank you if you already have rated and reviewed. On today's episode, we have Dr. Sarah Buckley back on the podcast. She was on the podcast about a year ago, I believe it was episode 36, that we talked about nature's hormonal blueprint for labor. Dr. Buckley is a medical doctor. She's a researcher. She's currently in a PhD program in School of Public Health, learning more and more about these natural hormonal cascades that... um, support natural childbirth and natural bonding, especially after birth. And last time we talked about pre-labor and the labor sequence. And today we're going to concentrate on that first hour after birth. It is such an important time and it is so amazing to hear all of the things your body does and your baby's body does to assist to recover from the birth experience, to bond and really set yourselves up health-wise for you and your postpartum, as well as for the baby in their first days and weeks of life. And Dr. Buckley goes through it so well. I want to get right to it. Um, But if you are pregnant, I really want you to listen to this so that you might make some different changes about how you do that first hour after birth. And even if you've already had your baby and that first hour has passed, understanding these normal hormonal cascades will give you insights into what you may be experiencing now and how you may be able to shift it so that it can be even better and even more of a bonding experience um, once baby's here. So let me introduce Dr. Buckley to you briefly, and then we'll get right to our conversation. Dr. Sarah Buckley is a family physician in Brisbane, Australia, trained in family physician obstetrics. She's the author of the internationally best-selling book, Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering, and the scientific report, Hormonal Physiology of Childbearing, published with Childbirth Connection. Sarah's work supports parents and professionals to be well-informed, to listen to their hearts and instincts, and to acknowledge the rightful place of parents as the real experts in their bodies, babies, and families. Sarah currently combines mothering her four children with her work as a writer and lecturer on pregnancy, birth, and parenting. Uh, In our conversation, she's going to mention lots and lots of resources. Don't worry. I took great notes. I have all those links in the show notes um, for you to click on and get, so you'll be able to just sit back, listen, and absorb all of her wisdom that she's going to share. So now let me switch over to my conversation with Dr. Sarah Buckley. All right, Dr. Buckley, welcome back to the podcast. 
Thank you, Jay. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's been quite a while since we've talked last time. Last time, to remind our listeners, uh, we were talking about all the hormonal cascade, the natural hormonal blueprints of childbirth, and we led you led us through uh, just how important that cascade is for pregnancy and specifically childbirth. And today, I'd love to talk with you about hormonal changes and kind of natural ways that the body regulates things in postpartum, because I know that's something that a lot of moms have questions about. And I know your expertise will be able to shed a lot of light on like what to expect, either, you know, if you're pregnant and um, getting ready for that postpartum period, what to expect, or if you're going through things now and your baby's already here to have some insights into what may be going on and, and uh, possibly some tips. So before we jump into that, though, um, Dr. Buckley, please tell us a little bit about how you've come in to be such an expert on hormonal physiology. I mean, you started off as a as a doctor going back into like kind of a GP uh, type of practice and now, you know, really getting specifics onto that. So how did you become so interested in this? Well, Jay, it's really come from my own experiences. I mean, I was always interested in childbirth. My dad was actually an obstetrician and Mm, my grandfather was a GP obstetrician who used to go out on horseback and attend women in the bush in the 1920s and 30s in New Zealand. Um, So, yeah, I grew up with it, I guess. I was always interested. But I had, you know, mainly it was from my own um, fabulous experiences with my four children. And um, all my children were born at home and I had such powerful and could say ecstatic experiences that were quite different from what I'd learned at medical school, what I'd seen in hospitals when I'd attended women giving birth in hospitals. Um, so, yeah, I came to wonder how does that make sense? Obviously, there's some reason for this, you know, there's some mm-hmm. science or, you know, body processes underlying it. And I was very inspired by the work of Michelle O'Don, who talks about all of these things. And so I sort of took up from there and started to research and write about what I call the ecstatic hormones. So I wrote an article for Mothering Magazine back in 2002 called Ecstatic Birth, Nature's Hormonal Blueprint for Labor. So it's not just about what happens when birth goes right, you could say, how all the hormones flow, all the things we talked about last time, but also what happens when we bring in various interventions and how does that create you know, what I now call hormonal gaps for mothers and babies. And uh, this work has culminated in a report that I was commissioned to write for Childbirth Connection in the US, and it's called Hormonal Physiology of Childbearing Evidence and Implications for Women, Babies and Maternity Care. So we'll put a link down there, but that's basically all the science underlying um, the things that I say. So what I'm talking about birth is, you know, it's um, it's personal, it's psychology, it's experiential, but it's also scientific. So there's a, a scientific base to, to the things that I'm saying. And, you know, it's what I call Mother Nature's superb design, you know, the, the idea that reproduction and birth is designed to work, you know, in women as in all other mammals. And it's why we're here today in an evolutionary sense. So I also talk about evolutionary perspectives, which are very interesting when you start to think about how we're hardwired, how our babies are hardwired, um, you know, through millions of years of evolution and the context, you know, what's been called the, the environment of evolutionary adaptation, what we're hardwired for, which is actually for giving birth in the wild, for parenting in the wild. You know, our babies are, are, are hardwired to believe that they're in the wild and that at any moment a lion could come and, and attack them. And you know, that explains a lot about, you know, what you experience as a parent actually in, um, it, it, with your baby and, and it explains why some of the things you might read in parenting books don't 
don't work because they're not premised on, you know, these the way that our, our bodies, our brains and our babies are hardwired. Right. And last time you led us through that cascade, like so well, knowing all those, the most four, the four most important hormones during birth. And what I'd like to do is assuming, and you're a big proponent of, you talk a lot about undisturbed birth, um, so that that cascade can happen as it's designed to in that infinite design. But Assuming that's b- progressed through, what changes once babies out in the world, and what are the things that we can do or a woman can do um, during that immediate postpartum time to go with that natural flow, if you will? Um, and then I'd also, after we're um, talking about that, I'd like to talk about if there are any interventions, um, how that might affect things. But first of all, like, what's the natural sequence of things once baby comes into the world? So one of the things that I say is that when a mother gives birth, she graduates as a mother and the hour after birth is her postgraduate education (laughs) because what's happened is, you know, we've got to this absolute peak of hormonal activity through the processes of labor and birth. So all of our ecstatic hormones that we talked about, and I'll just recap a little bit, um, oxytocin, hormone of love produced in the brain and from the brain into the body. So during labor and birth, and this is true for all of these hormones, they have both effects within the brain and effects within the body. So oxytocin, most famous as a hormone that makes the uterus contract, it causes the rhythmic contractions of labor, along with a whole lot of other biochemical processes, but essentially is a uterus contracting agent. But at the same time, what's happening is it's being released from the brain, which is how it gets to the uterus, but inside the brain. And inside the brain, it has all these incredible effects that we're really just beginning to understand. It switches on natural calming, pain relieving effects, it switches on in all mammals, the maternal circuits, those part of the brain that initiate instinctive mothering behaviors. Um, And it, it, it also turns on, this is important, the reward and pleasure centers, the dopamine um, pathways in the brain that activate um, reward and pleasure for us. So the purpose of that during labor and birth is obviously to help the mother to deal with that intensity of it. But the peaks that she gets at the moment of birth and for that hour afterwards then imprint pleasure and reward in relation to her baby. So it's, it's like the best, best first date ever. It's like <laughs> this is my baby. It's the most pleasurable and rewarding thing I've ever seen in my whole life. You know, there's maximum not just oxytocin levels but oxytocin activity. So just to go back a step, you know, the um, all these things are happening not just because of the mother and baby meeting but there's all the processes of labor and birth where she's had these peaks of oxytocin in her brain but even before that her her whole body and brain has been set up for these experiences by increasing the sensitivity of her brain the, the hormone receptor levels in her brain um, this is true for all mammals we haven't actually gone in there and tested women's brains if anyone wants to have that done on them you know sample of their brain taken to test the <laughs> hormone levels for um, receptor levels but you you know, it's a general principle that the, the the mother nature or biology or, you know, sets it all up, God, if you like, sets it all up. So at that time when the hormones kick in, in labor and birth and then after birth, the, the system is at peak sensitivity. It's a, you know, 
know, biologically, it's a sensitive period for mothers and babies where things are meant to happen. And when things happen, they can be maximally effective. So because of all this pre-labor preparation, because of all the processes of labor and birth, when mother and baby meet for the first time, her oxytocin systems are maximally activated. Her reward and pleasure centers are maximally activated. And she gets this big imprint, oh, that's my baby. My baby is so rewarding to me that I'll do all the things that I need to do to take care of my baby and they will be rewarding as well and you know if you think about just going back to that you know evolutionary other mammals thing you know it's like dogs and cats and elephants and monkeys you know they don't go to prenatal classes they don't read books they don't have a concept of their baby until they give birth but because all these things are happening biologically in their brain they get an imprint of pleasure with their baby and they'll do those things to look after their baby because it's pleasurable you know and, and there's animal lots of animal experiments around that there's a there was a very cute one they did with rats where they put the mama rat in a cage um uh, you know, two to 12 days postpartum and she could press a little bar and the babies, had, you know, a little baby had come down the chute and she had bar press until she had 12 babies in her cage. She, she was so incentivized, you could say, so wanted those babies. She had bar press until she had her cage full of babies. You know? <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that, that, that's the mammalian blueprint, if you like, and it is hardwired into mothers and babies nowadays as well. You know, we're still hardwired with this. And if you want to know all the science behind it, I'd suggest you go to my um, hormonal physiology of childbearing report and there's a phrase I use that actually comes from another researcher called Nils Bergman but I use the phrase biological bonding so there's this biology that's designed to have that bonding happen to have it work in the short term in the medium term and in the longer term and you know if we do have interventions as, as we mentioned last time you know this is going to interfere with the hormones hormonal cascade the ecstatic hormones the biological bonding and you know just going back to that sequence i talked about the pre-labor preparations the in-labor events the postpartum connection between mother and baby if any of those things get interfered with it's going to interfere with the hormones so now if a woman is induced or if she has a pre-labor cesarean she misses out on that pre-labor preparations that ensure that her brain in particular but her uterus as well is at peak readiness peak sensitivity she misses the hormonal events of labor and birth again because of a cesarean or if they're cut short because of an in-labor cesarean then that will have an impact and if she misses that hour after birth when as i said it's her postgraduate education when all these preparations have been made but she actually meets her baby and there's this highly sensitive period of the first hour when everything's kind of designed to kick in and the mother's designed to be with the baby skin to skin the baby has all these um inbuilt reflexes or body um um body processes that allow the baby to crawl up, the breast crawl people might have heard. If you haven't heard of that, you could just Google it and find some videos. There's lots of information about there, out there about how the baby's designed to be able to actually find the breast and latch on themselves. And this is obviously what every other mammalian baby does. You know, the baby piglet finds its way to the mother's teeth. The mother isn't kind of picking up the baby and sticking it on. But the baby's designed to find its way and human babies are designed to find their way. I mean, it took us a long time to figure this out. It's a bit crazy, but human babies are designed and it's totally miraculous. You know, the, the baby goes skin to skin on the mother's belly and what happens is the baby has these reflexes. It has a stepping reflex that actually on its way up there, it usually kind of steps around the mother's uterus and puts a bit of pressure on her uterus and that helps the mother's uterus to contract and stop bleeding. And then as the baby comes up, the baby 
baby, or the, the first thing the baby does is start to, well, the baby finds the nipple because it smells like amniotic fluid. It's that kind of target, you know, that that's easy to see. And then the baby finds the nipple. And then what the baby does is the baby starts to massage the mother's nipple with the hand. And that actually massage behavior causes big peaks in the mother's oxytocin levels. So it sends a message to her brain, release oxytocin, she gets big download of oxytocin that, you know, is increasing these reward and pleasure centers that we talked about. It's also increasing the skin sensitivity, but also importantly, it's actually contracting her uterus. We talked about oxytocin as a hormone that makes the uterus contract. And that's really important after birth. I'm sure the listeners have heard of postpartum hemorrhage and maybe it's happened to you where you get more bleeding than you should after the birth. And the way to counteract that is to have oxytocin. And the ideal, what Mother Nature's superb design, is this natural oxytocin from the baby's connection with the breast, from the baby stepping, from the mother's, you know, um, calm and connection with her baby from even seeing her baby releases oxytocin to some extent so that oxytocin then in this beautiful kind of holistic systems way does everything the mother needs it um it uh turns on her pleasure and reward centers connects her with her baby um contracts up her uterus calms and connects her so she's in this relaxed state to meet her baby and actually it also does this um amazing thing of of vasodilating opening up the blood vessels on her chest wall and that forms a natural warming mechanism for the baby so again people have probably heard of skin to skin and how good it is for the baby and one of the reasons for this is because of the mother's oxytocin levels that cause this opening up this flushing if you like on her chest wall and it's something it's a general effect that women have like when we get sexually aroused from that that that's associated with oxytocin increases and we can sometimes get this flush that goes from our chest up to our neck and that's that same effect but the the, the reason what we have it is to to be this natural warming mechanism for the baby after birth and the, the mother's chest actually literally pumps heat pulses heat to the baby which keeps the baby warm and you may or may not know that you know a skin-to-skin baby even with nothing on it will be much warmer than no matter how many layers you put on the baby and put it into a a plastic box or separate the baby that baby will never be as warm as a skin-to-skin baby because the mother's pulsing heat the mother's system is actually what we call mutual, mutually regulating the heat with the baby. So if the baby's a bit too cool, the mother pulses more heat. The baby's a bit warm, the mother's body pulses less heat. So there's actually this like thermostat mechanism. I mean, it's all just miraculous, isn't it? But you know, mother nature's superb design for survival so that the mother survives, the baby survives, mother and baby are bonded together, the mother's reward and pleasure centers will be activated so that she'll go on and be rewarded and motivated to give that dedicated care that actually every mammalian mother needs to give to her newborn baby. Hearing these things, it's just always amazing to me, like how perfect the body is and how perfect the processes are that it's thought of everything. You know, it's like, hey, let's have another effect of oxytocin to warm the baby as well. You know, it's like, it's amazing. Um, It's, it's lost on us, I think, sometimes about, you know, the infinite wisdom of one sperm, one egg becoming an amazing miracle of a baby in nine months is appreciated sometimes, although that still is fascinating. But then we think we lose that. Um, innate wisdom, but then there we hear about all these natural mechanisms our bodies do, either as a mother or as a baby, crawling to the breast to do that symbiotic initiation. It, it's it's absolutely amazing. W- with that heat example, though, like how do you feel about um, putting uh, the little hats on babies like right away? That's such a common yeah. Process. Look, 
I haven't, I don't, I haven't seen research on that. But the thing is, you know, you've got to. I mean, my kind of baseline is evolution. So for millions of years, who was knitting the hats? Like, <laughs> there were no hats, right? We just—it's designed to work without, you know, just without even any body coverings. And I'm not suggesting we don't cover the body, but that's how what's designed to work. So you know, the hatting is is not necessary. And, and also, the other thing is, you know, there's there's these things we know, as you say, but then there's whole. It's like the ice. Burgers is but we know above the water, but there's all this incredible miraculous processes underneath the water that every now and then we get a hint at. Like for example, um, you know, we talk about the stress of labor, and there's a lot about that in my report. But basically, the stress of labor for the mother switches on. You know, all of these systems that we're talking about, the cortisol, the stress hormone, actually switches on the connection to her baby. It's a bit like, um, you know. No, you know, stress. When we're in a stressful situation, it helps us to bond with people because of cortisol. Cortisol increases oxytocin binding to its receptors. So the stress of labour and birth, you know, for the mother, helps to activate all these systems as well. And I'm mentioning that because there was a study that was done that looked at first-time mothers and measured their cortisol levels. So cortisol is a stress hormone, but in the context of labour and birth. I call it eustress, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S, which means a healthy form of stress. So labor and birth is a eustress for the mother that activates her cortisol. And in this study, it actually increased how pleasurable she found the smell of her baby. There's a word hedonic, like pleasure, how pleasurable it is. So mothers, first-time mothers who had high cortisol levels had more hedonic responses to the smell of their baby. So what that means for me is a lot of things in there. One, stress, you know, the stress of labor and birth contributes to all the things we're talking about. But secondly, that the, that connection, that smell connection between the mother and the baby is actually really important. And, you know, all mammals use smell. Smell releases oxytocin. It's all connected to the oxytocin system. In, in, in mammals, there's a pathway from the nose up to the oxytocin system in the brain. So that, you know, you know it's like for us too, like smells can be pleasurable and connecting and nothing that's especially so in that time after birth the mother's smelling the baby the baby's smelling the mother and that's um, increasing this um, connectedness between mother and baby so if we put the hat on the baby right, you know, the, the, the closest part of the baby is the head you know the mother you, you'll see it in, in videos or in pictures the mother is reaching down and she's smelling the head of the baby and if we put a hat on that's going to interfere with that smell connection between the mother and the baby I and mean, there's lots of smell lots of sensory input at that time of course and other other mammals lick their babies and often we do that with our babies we kiss them and we we're actually passing microbiome back and forth and we're sampling their smell. We're increasing our pleasure in it and we're making neural pathways between us and the baby that are actually, in lots of mammals, making a one-on-one -on -one connection with our baby. So, again, there's studies showing that mothers and babies can recognize each other's smell within a very small, short time after birth. And, again, another hormone that contributes to that is for the babies, the baby, the, the stress of being born. I was talking about cortisol for the mother. But that's true for the baby. And, again, there's been this misunderstanding that we should protect the baby from the stress of birth, you know. But the stress of being born actually switches on a whole lot of things for the baby that contribute to the baby's survival. One of them is the hormone noradrenaline, the norepinephrine, that reaches peaks in the baby at the moment of birth. And again, that's a, a bonding hormone for the mother and for the baby. And what we know about that hormone is it actually switches on the baby's learning of smells. 
you know, the baby's learning. So, you know, the babies that have been through a labor and birth and had these peak levels of noradrenaline, they learn smells much more quickly in that short window after birth than babies, for example, that have had a cesarean that don't have those hormonal peaks. So anyway, the basic take-home message is the baby has all these hormonal support to learn the smell of the mother just as a mother learns the smell of the baby. And in some mammals, that's, you know, that's how they form this one-on-one bond. That means that that mother will only take care of that baby. And if anyone in, in, in the listening listening has um, like an animal background or particularly sheep, it's, you know, sheep farmers use this. So the mother has a baby and that baby dies or there's, a, there's an orphaned lamb. If you can introduce the smell of that mo- that lamb to the mother in that little window that hour after birth, the mother will accept that baby as her own. So sometimes, you know, they get the, 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 the skin of the baby that died and they have the mother smell it, and then the mother will bond to that to mother will bond to that lamb. That doesn't make sense. So but anyway, it's, it's basically that window of, of opportunity, you know, that first hour after birth, that is a sensitive period for bonding, for smell, for um, hormone activation, for breastfeeding as well. And that's why we have this whole system called the Baby Friendly Hospital Initiative that's kind of designed to make sure that mothers and babies are together for that hour after birth. Right. What, do you, what are your takes on or is your take on cord clamping? What can you tell us about that? Well, again, if we use kind of evolution or biology as our as our kind of baseline, you know, as my friend Sarah Wickham said, if we were designed to clamp our baby's cord, we'd be born with a cord clamp on our thought, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so our baby's cords aren't designed to be clamped. And actually, if you've ever done it yourself, it's quite difficult. They're kind of slippery and, you know, slimy and you kind of, kind of hard to get hold of, right? So, you know, bottom line, biologically, we're not designed to clamp the cord. So what is designed to happen if you look at uh, ourselves and other mammals is that the mother and the baby it comes out so the baby comes out the cords intact and if you you might have noticed this if you have attended birth or for your own baby when that when the baby comes out the cord is big and full and pulsing because there's blood going through that cord there's blood going through that cord from the placenta to the baby so it's kind of hard to explain without a diagram in front of me but basically the baby comes out the baby's still connected to the cord and the cord is still connected to the placenta which is still inside the mother's uterus so what's happening for those early moments, those three to five minutes after birth, is the mother's uterus is still contracting just as it was during labor and birth. And each time it contracts, it's squeezing the placenta, and that's pushing blood towards the baby. And you can actually see it. There have been a few studies done where they've weighed the baby or put the baby on a weighing machine straight after birth, and you can see that the baby's weight increases as their blood's pumped to the baby, and then it stabilizes or even decreases a little bit between these between these uterine contractions and there's a gradual increase in the baby's weight that's generally about 100 grams which is 100 mils the baby in those three to five minutes after birth gains 100 extra mils of its own blood you could say that was stored in the placenta temporarily um, during that time and it is the baby's own blood that's been circulating through but the baby actually needs this um, so-called extra blood because what's happened in the womb um, is the baby's being supported by the placenta. So the placenta's done a whole lot of things for the baby in the womb. It's been the um, the element that's been the, the organ that delivers the baby's oxygen. It delivers the baby's fuel, the glucose, and, and fuel the baby needs to grow. It's kept the baby warm by um, by 
delivering warmed blood to the baby. It's um, it's it's performed the functions of the baby's liver by um, detoxifying any toxins and taking them away. It's performed the function of the baby's kidneys by um, filtering the blood and, and getting rid of it. You know, probably if you're pregnant, you know you're actually peeing for your baby, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So so all these organs, you know, the baby, the, the placenta is basically performed the functions of the kidney, the liver, the skin, the gut, and the lung. And then after birth, obviously the baby's got to do that all for themselves. And in the womb, when those organs are not functioning, they're, they're not, there's not blood going to those organs. There's nothing much happening in the kidney because, you know, the kidney's not really doing much. But once the baby's born and the kidney's got to start working, for example, the kidney needs more blood supply, and that's true of the lungs and the liver and the skin and the gut. So there's extra blood that all these organs need to perform those functions after the birth that they didn't need to perform before the birth is in this extra 100 mils of blood. And that's around about a third of the baby's total blood volume. The baby's total blood volume at birth, depending on the size of the baby, is like 250 to 300 mils. It's a little bit over a cup. Um, so this 100 mils is necessary to adequately perfuse, to send a blood supply to all those organs that weren't working that now have to work. And the lung is, is the big example, of course, because in the lung, the baby is, in the womb, the baby isn't breathing. But once the baby comes out, the baby has to breathe. The lungs need a lot more blood supply to process that oxygen and send it around to the baby. So this cord clamping, it's really important not to clamp the cord in those early minutes so that the baby gets this extra 100 mils of blood. Because obviously if we clamp the cord, then the blood can't go from the placenta to the baby and we, the baby's going to be deprived to some extent. And is it, why was cord clamping instituted? Like what is the reasoning yeah. before it? Well, that, just to go back a step, so if we don't clamp the cord, then what actually happens is the cord, if you, you know, if you watch the cord, and actually there's some beautiful pictures online. A midwife took a series of pictures of the cord in the minutes after birth, and as I said, it starts off being like thick and juicy and pulsing, and then the pulses gradually subside, and then the thickness and juiciness subsides because there's no blood going through. And after like 5 to 10 to 20 minutes, that you can see there's nothing happening. The cord becomes like a ribbon. And there's actually mechanisms inside the cord that are sealing off those blood vessels. There's a whole complex reorganization of the baby's circulatory system from the, the in the womb to outside, the fetal to newborn circulation, we call it. But part of that reorganization is the closing off of the placental vessel. So that happens naturally. So if we don't clamp the cord, well, <laughs> talk about animals, what animals do, they don't clamp the cord, obviously. And it comes to the point where, you know, a few minutes after the mother's licking and getting to that, and then she'll actually chew through the cord and she actually eats the placenta. And there's various things we could talk about eating the placenta, but she chews through the cord. And at that point, there's pretty much no circulation happening through the cord. So there may be a couple of little drips of blood. And, of course, this is what we used to do before we invented cord clamps. You know, you'd cut through the cord at that time. But, you know, there'd be a couple of drops of blood maybe at that point, you know, if you wait the full time until the cord becomes like a ribbon. But then what, what seemed to happen historically was that, you know, women went from giving birth like in the house up on about you know with attended by their godsips their midwives their women friends to lying in bed to give birth and apparently the cord clamp was invented to spare the bed linen you know so you didn't drip blood off the sheets is that... so that's, that's originally that's one story about originally why we started clamping the cord and then once you start clamping the cord then of course you've got these choices you could clamp the cord straight away you could clamp the cord at 30 seconds or one minute or five minutes or 20 minutes whatever you know with varying degrees of impact on the 
this process I'm talking about, the, the transfer of the blood from the mother, from the placenta to the baby, is sometimes called the placental transfusion. Yeah, we could, we should really call it redistribution because it's the baby's own blood. But basically, the earlier you clamp the cord, the less of that blood the baby's going to get. And you know, um, another answer to your question, why do we clamp the cord? Well, there was also <clears throat> some studies that were actually not very good studies, a bit widely critiqued in the. 60s and 70s that looked at um, clamping the cord and they decided that we should clamp the cord early so the baby didn't get this blood, that the baby was actually going to get too much blood, which if you look at everything I've said and the biology and what other mammals do, it's quite a preposterous <laughs> preposterous idea that Mother Nature could have it so wrong. But anyway, that's what came into practice. And then the early cord clamping got taken up into this package that has been called the Active Management of Third Stage, which is a, a package of procedures designed to stop the mother bleeding. And because it was incorporated into that package, it was researched as a package. And so there was evidence that showed that when you use this package, which was early cord clamping, um, um, cord traction, so pulling on the cord to help the placenta to come out, and an oxytocic drug like synthetic oxytocin. So when that whole package was instituted, it seemed to reduce the chance of the mother bleeding. So, you know, early cord clamping got sort of taken up as a religion, if you like, as part of that package for decades before we started to unpack that package and think, well, what is it that's actually, if, if this is reducing the risk of bleeding, what is it, which part of it is it's doing that? And it's certainly not the early clamping because now we know that early cord clamping deprives the baby of that blood that blood has lots of good things in it, including red blood cells, which have iron. You know, and the latest studies are showing that that when babies miss out on that that extra blood or their their own blood, that extra iron in that, they have high risk of anemia and, in one study, worse developmental outcomes at age four. So there's an ongoing effect from being deprived of that blood um, in, in in those early minutes after birth. Great. Well, thank you for clarifying that because I know there's a lot of people that have questions about cord clamping, delayed cord clamping, especially in skin to skin. I mean, it makes perfect sense in a physiological sense, like why we'd want to do all of these things. And in our closing minutes, um, we were talking about basically this one hour window of just how many amazing things happen after the birth. But I want to make sure that you um, share some of your wisdom around what you call the baby moon, you know, this, this period of time afterwards and how important that is for the family, um, for mom, for dad, as well as the baby. So can you share, share some of that with us? Yeah, so so going on from everything that we've talked about, you know, mother and baby are in this extraordinary, exceptional hormonal state for the early hours and days and weeks. You might have noticed this yourself. And you know, it's really important, you know, and I'm talking about kind of um, wisdom more than science here because we haven't actually started to look at this scientifically, but it's really important to honour that incredible processes that mother's gone through, that the baby has gone through and is just landing in this new world and, you know, um, all the baby systems are getting used to gravity and hormones and day and night and all of those things. And the best thing we can do to honour that and give a gentle transition is to really create for ourselves, you know, what's been called a baby moon a period of seclusion and it's something that other cultures have <clears throat> 
instinctively done you know 40 days six weeks is a kind of bit of a, a rule of thumb where mother and baby are given special care massage fed food the mother doesn't have to do her normal family household duties and obviously six weeks might be sound like a little bit hard to to organize but look the longer that you have there you know two weeks if you can organize it stay in your pajamas don't leave the house you know <laughs> if you're in your pajamas people can ask you to do anything you know and you know it, it's good for the baby you know the baby doesn't need that extra stimulation of the outside world the baby really needs to be cocooned for their own you know experience of a gentle transition so if you can organize that you know there's there's amazing resources like postpartum doulas these days that can help you with that there's um you know you can get meals you can organize a meal roster for yourself for your friends that are in this time so you know i really encourage you if you're planning this to really honor that postpartum time um you know and and to arrange as much for yourself as possible to to be relieved of your normal duties have people help with the children and look everybody wants to help with a new baby so write a list ask someone to help you to to get people who want to help onto that list of helping you there's some great books the postpartum survival guide is a great one i think we're we're starting to latch onto this but you know i think there's been this you know we shouldn't be you know telling mothers what to do you know you should be the superwoman that can do anything but it is you know the, the myself as a as a mother with four children the, the more the more time and rest I had spent resting at that time, the more, the better my whole first year was, you know, it's really important. Yeah. With all the moms that I've worked with, like it's the second and third time around that moms really commit to that much differently than first time around. Um, and so I think your message here and trying to share that, um, knowing, okay, in the, those first couple months, there's so many things going on. Like one, you're recovering from nine months of pregnancy. You're recovering from the birth. You're getting used to your baby. There's so much there that getting back to working out and getting back to work and all those things, like if, if can be delayed, the better so that you guys can form this amazing, amazing bond, recover properly and really jump into your family experience, healthy and whole rather than depleted because that rears its ugly head later on down the line for sure. Yeah, that's beautiful. You know, in Chinese medicine, they say that this this time, that if you treat it properly, you're actually giving yourself a store of life force energy that's going to last you through to menopause. Mm. So <laughs> that's a good perspective to remember. Yeah, and a good incentive as well. Mm. Well, mm. Sarah, where can um, people learn more about your work? And these are, the, I've taken a long list of um, the different ones that you've mentioned. I'll make sure we have that in the show notes. But um, in general, where would you like people to go to learn more about your work? Well, I think especially go to my website, sarahbuckley.com, and I think you put the web link there, um, Jay, to the yeah. subscribe section. And I suggest that you subscribe to my um, – I've got two lists, one for parents and one for professionals. So if you kind of, you know, you want to know a bit more, I'd suggest you su subscribe to the parents list. There's a really nice ebook there called Pain and Labor, Your Hormones Are Your Helpers, which is a nice basic description of what we've talked about. But if you want to know more, if you want to know all the science or more of the science, then sign up to the professionals list. You don't have to be a professional. And you can download that article that I talked about, Ecstatic Birth, Nature's Hormonal Blueprint for Labor, which I'm continually updating. And that's a really nice introduction to everything I've said. It's got all the references. It's got the science there. And then if you and then you can keep an update with what I'm doing. I'm actually working on some webinars on ecstatic birth. So you can see it all in the comfort of your own home. Fantastic. Um, 
But also, um, if you put a link there, Jay, also to my report, Hormonal Physiology of Childbearing. So particularly mm-hmm. if you're an academic, if you want to know all, all the science, it's got like 1140 references there. So if you want to know all that stuff, exactly why does she say this, what is the science behind this, then I'd really recommend that you go. It's a, it's a totally free PDF download thanks to the National Partnership for Women and Families, um, and I'd really recommend that as well. And I'll, just on my website there, there's also I did, I've got a video called Undisturbed Birth, which has got a PowerPoint slide of all of this stuff as well, and it goes through all the third stage, the cord clamping things as well, and that's got free shipping worldwide on my web shop. Good. Well, I'll make sure I took great notes just now. I'll make sure all those links are there in the show notes for you listeners so that you can just click right onto it to the um, subscription and be able to get those downloads. Well, Sarah, thank you again so much for being back. It's really nice to talk with you again. Um, congratulations in advance on your PhD work. Um, keep it up um, for our listeners. You know, she's pursuing a PhD to learn more. So you'll be able to share even more with us as we go. So good luck with all of that. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And thanks, thanks for your work. And just, you know, lots of, um, you know, lots of love to all the mamas and families out there. You know, it's a, it's a really big job and your hormones are here to help you. Hi, it's Dr. J again, and I want to thank you so much for listening to the podcast. It's something I really enjoy doing, and I, as a parent, learn a ton from these experts coming on and sharing their wisdom. So I hope you're getting a lot out of it, too. And I want to share something else with you. I've created a guide called The 40 Ways to Connect with Your Baby During Pregnancy. It's full of simple things you can do on a day-to-day basis that will help strengthen that bond that you have with your baby. It's a free download. You can go to my website at drjwarren.com slash 40 ways and just enter your email. I'll send it right to you. You can download it and start working on it right away. All of the research that I'm learning in the fields of epigenetics and attachment parenting is showing that the more bonded you are during your pregnancy with your baby, the better the birth is going to go and the better parenting is going to go because you have that strong foundation, a strong connection to build upon. So go again to my website. It's drjwarren.com slash 40 ways and get that free guide. And again, thanks for listening.